Uh, Kirk uh, told me when uh, I texted him and asked what he wanted me to talk about, and he said a couple of weeks ago, Ken Fish came and gave you a great word on discipleship, and then last week, Kirk followed that on with discipleship, so I figured, well, we might as well stay with that theme and keep at it. And I started to think about a couple of books that have been quite influential in my own journey and in my uh, thinking as a disciple. I'm not checking Facebook. Um, I typed my notes up on the plane coming up here, so my sermon's actually on my phone. There's a, a destructive aspect of the world in which we live which tells us or makes us think that anything worthwhile can be acquired at once. We live in an instant society. And yet Jesus has called you to be his disciples in an instant society. Eugene Peterson, who was one of my uh, teachers at Bible school uh, and the author of one of the books that I'm referencing, says that the church has been captured by a tourist mindset. Right? That there's a great appetite for religious experience, but there's very little enthusiasm for the patient acquisition of virtue. Right? Lots of tourists looking for religious experience, but very little enthusiasm for the patient acquisition of virtue. See, most of the good things in life, most of the things that make life worthwhile, that make you a contributor rather than a taker, take time, take investment. Eugene Peterson has written lots of books, I think 40 or 50 of them, um, definitely worth reading. Uh, I'm about a quarter of the way through. Um, I did a class with him on spirituality and he shed, said you should pick three theologians and try to read everything that they write because that's the best way to avoid blind spots. That's the best way to stop just from reading the stuff that you like. And so I picked three of my t uh, teachers at Regent. Uh, I picked Peterson. I picked F uh, Gordon Fee, New Testament scholar, and uh, Tom Wright, another uh, New Testament scholar. Not realising at the time that Eugene Peterson and N.T. Wright would be two of the most prolific writers of books in my time. Now, Peterson's first book is called A Long Obedience in the Same Direction. Some of you have heard of it? It was on one of the books on the reading list for uh, the leadership track. The title for this book comes from a very astute observation by the atheist philosopher Friedrich Nietzsche. 
Now, you may or may not have heard of Nietzsche. He grew up in the church, but went on to become the father of nihilism, right? The belief in nothing. Uh, but in one of his books, he makes this very astute observation. He says, the essential thing in heaven and on earth is that there should be long obedience in the same direction. There thereby results and has always resulted in the long run something which has made life worth living. So here's Nietzsche who went on to become one of the world's leading atheists making a very astute observation of what it means to follow Jesus. That the thing that makes life worth living is a long obedience in the same direction. See, this is discipleship. Discipleship is a setting of the life to follow Jesus. And then we choose to lean in that direction and to walk in that direction for the whole of life and not to turn aside to the right or the left, not to settle down and stop somewhere, but to live a life of long obedience in the same direction. Are you interested in having a life worth living? Most of us in our better moments want to make a difference in our world. The church is full of tourists looking for religious experiences, but pastors are not tour guides, and we are not on a day trip. We're called to set out on a journey and so today I want to think about discipleship in terms of three words which the New Testament uses to describe the people of Jesus. The words are disciple, pilgrim, and servant. And these are three words that are frequently used in the New Testament to describe the life of discipleship. Now, disciple, you no doubt heard from Ken, uh, translates the Greek word methetes, which, for which the best English equivalent is probably apprentice. A disciple is somebody who is apprenticed to a craftsman or to a master tradesman. And so... Whilst a disciple has an aspect of learning, it's not school learning. It's not learning in the classroom. It's spending time in the workshop with the craftsman, watching the way he works, or going with the craftsman out on the job to learn by doing. A disciple is not somebody who's just learning skills, a disciple actually learns the way of life of the master. And this is what we're called to, that we're called to learn the way of life of the master of life. 
There's only one. Now, if you've got your Bibles, I'll get you to turn to the end of Matthew's Gospel. I'm sure this will be a familiar passage to you, and we won't spend much time there. But for me, this is where my definition, and I believe Jesus' definition of disciple comes from. What is a disciple? Now, this is quite important, or Matthew thought it was quite important, because he put it right at the end of his book. Uh, usually when we're learning from a teacher, the first stuff he has to say is really important, and the last thing he has to say is really important. In Jesus' case, the stuff in the middle is quite important too. But Matthew put this right at the end of the book. Jesus, after his resurrection, calls his friends together and he says, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Therefore, go and make disciples. So this disciple word is quite important because this is the task that Jesus has given to his followers. And through his followers, this task comes to us. Our job's not to come to church. Our job is to make disciples. Now, what is a disciple? So Jesus goes on to tell us that discipleship involves two things. He says, go into all the world and make disciples, baptising them in the name of the Father, the Son and the Holy Spirit. Now, baptism is about being brought into the body of Christ. Baptism is about joining the community of followers of Jesus. So discipleship is not something that we do on our own. Discipleship is something that we do in the company of believers. We're meant to work together on this and follow Jesus together and complete his commission together. The second bit is just as important. Not only do we, are we brought into the community of followers of Jesus, but he goes on to say, and are taught to obey everything, or sorry, teaching them to obey everything that I have commanded you. And if you do this, I'll be with you always, right up until the end of the age. So, here we have discipleship. Our task is to make disciples. How do we make disciples? Well, we do it the way Jesus did it, and we bring them into the company of those who believe. And in the company of those who believe, we teach them to obey everything that Jesus commanded. So a disciple is a person who's learning a way of life and what's the most, most important word for a disciple? Right, the key verb for a disciple is obey. Now, if you have your Bibles, I'll get you to turn now to John 14. Now, John has a very different take on the life of Jesus than the other three gospel writers. And when Jesus teaches in, God, in John, he tends to give long speeches. And John thought this one was important because this is the last long speech that Jesus gives and this is the night before he goes to the cross. So he's having a meal with his friends and he talks to his friends about the future, about what's coming, 
and he talks to them about what's important. And over and over again in John 14, he stresses and repeatedly stresses the connection between love and obedience. I just want to read a couple of verses for you. Sorry, I need to find the passage. Or maybe I could just... No, I couldn't. So John 14 verse 15 says, If you love me, Jesus is saying, you'll keep my commandments. Right, but he goes on to say, if you love me, you'll keep my commandments and I will send you a helper, the spirit of truth, who'll be with you forever. Now that's important because I've read the commandments and some of them are hard. But Jesus says, you don't have to do this on your own. I'm going to send you a helper, one who will be with you forever He's the one who enables you to do it. Now, in the next paragraph, Jesus says it again in a different way. In verse 21, he says, Whoever has my commandments and keeps them, he's the one who loves me. And he who loves me will be loved by my Father, and I will love him and show myself to him. Now you'll notice here, again there's a connection between loving God, loving Jesus, and obeying the commands of Jesus. How do we show Jesus that we love him? Right? Is it by singing these beautiful love songs that we start our meetings with? Right? It doesn't hurt. Worship is quite an important part of the Christian life. But Jesus says, the evidence that you love me is that you keep my commands. But he goes on to say, if you keep my commands, you're showing that you love me, so my Father will love you and I will show, show myself to you. So notice that there's a deal here. We keep the commands of Jesus and Jesus reveals himself to us. We get invited into a life of revelation. The next verse, he says it again in a different way. If anyone loves me, he will keep my word and my Father will love him, and we will come to him and make our home with him. Let me read that again. If anyone loves me, she will keep my word, and my Father will love her, and we will come to her and make our home with her. That sounds like a pretty good deal to me. Our job is to pay attention to the things that Jesus told us to do, not as a rule-based, try-harder type of holiness, 
but a, as a way of expressing our love to the God who gave his son for us. And the deal is that as we attempt to start doing that, God, Father and Son and Spirit comes into our life and he fills us up and he gives us his life and that's actually the thing that enables us to keep his commands. See, holiness ultimately is God working through us by his spirit. All we've got to do is cooperate, make ourselves available. Love, obey. The second word that I want to look at this morning is the word pilgrims. Parepidemos in Greek, which only occurs in a couple of passages. Now, a pilgrim is someone who spends their life going somewhere to God. We're called to be pilgrims. Now, Peterson takes this word because his book, A Long Obedience in the Same Direction, is an exposition of the Psalms of Ascent. So these are a group of about 15 psalms, starting with Psalm 120, which the Hebrew pilgrims used to sing every year when they left their homes and walked to Jerusalem to go to the big festivals. If you're a Hebrew person living in Jesus' day or the thousand years before that, three times a year you left home and you walked to Jerusalem and you went to a feast for Passover, for Pentecost and for Tabernacles. And all of the people of God at the same time would be leaving their homes and walking towards the temple in Jerusalem to celebrate the great acts of salvation in which God had saved Israel and redeemed it. And in this way, their faith is refreshed as they remember what God did in the past in a way that creates hope that God will do it again in the future and even in our own time. But a pilgrim is a person on a journey it's a person who's stuck somewhere between leaving and arriving. And if you've become a Christian, that's where you are. You're a person who lives between the times, between leaving your old way of life where you're caught up with selfishness and whatever you want, and between arriving at the full consummation of God's new creation, which arrived with the resurrection of Jesus. But if you look around, you'll notice it hasn't come fully. And we live in that place. Right? Paul describes it as living in this present evil age. But we don't belong to this present evil age. We belong to the age to come, which has already broken in to this evil age. So a pilgrim is one who spends their life going someplace, going to God. And in our case, we discover that, that our path to God is through Jesus. Jesus said, I'm the way. 
No one comes to the Father except through me. So Jesus is the way. Now, followers of the way, if you read Acts carefully, is one of the first names that Christians ever gave themselves. Right? Followers of the way was the name of followers of Jesus before we were called Christians. So in the early chapters of Acts, Luke talks three times about the followers of the way. That's us. This is about pilgrimage. This is about a people who are living somewhere between leaving and arriving. And we're walking together on a journey to celebrate the great acts of God bringing salvation to his people. The way is a person. In fact, the way is the person that we're called to follow. Right? He made the way for us and he invites us to follow with him and he accompanies us on our journey. Now, John Wimber, who's been another quite important influence on my journey, picked up this idea of the way in a sermon that he wrote called The Way In is the Way On. Now, after his death, this was taken as a title for a book which is a collection of his sermons. That's also worth read, uh, reading. I definitely recommend you come along and watch his story tonight. It's a fantastic story and he's very easy to listen, but he's dangerous. He's uh, very challenging. But this second idea, the way in, is the way on. Now, what does he mean by that? We are pilgrims on a journey to somewhere and we're apprentices learning the way of life of a master. Now, Jesus is the master of human life. He is the only person in the history of the world to have ever mastered human life. The rest of us are just giving it a shot. He got it right. The only time in the history of the world. So he's probably worth paying attention to. He's probably worth following. So what is the way? Right? Wimber says the way in, that is the way into faith, the way into relationship with God, is the way on. What he's saying is that the way that we come to Jesus is the way that we continue in Jesus. The things that we did when we first entered into faith, we're never going to outgrow those things. So what's the way in? Now for this I'd like you to turn to Mark's Gospel, chapter 1. If I get the opportunity to lead a person to Jesus, this is usually the place I go. Because I think Jesus here gives us very clear instructions about how we go about joining the way of faith. And incidentally, this is three of his commands. So if you want to be a disciple of Jesus, one of the ways you can get started on that is go to the Gospels and read through the Gospels and every time you get to a command, something where Jesus tells people to do something, 
you underline it or you highlight it or you uh, cut and paste it into a document where you collect the commands of Jesus. Have you ever done that? So, or you could Google the seven commands of Christ. That's a really helpful study that looks at seven of the big commands that Jesus gave to his disciples. And that's a really good starter in helping a person to follow Jesus because a disciple is somebody who's taught to obey the commands of Jesus. If we don't know the commands of Jesus, how are we going to keep them? And keeping his commands is the key to God showing himself to us. So if you haven't ever done that, I recommend that you give it a shot. So you could look for the seven big commands of Christ, you know, things like love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your mind, with all your soul. That might be important because when Jesus was asked, what's the most important command? That's the one he went for. And the second is like it, love your neighbour as yourself. Right, so if you think there's a lot of commands, you can actually come up with about 50. If you think that's too many, just start with those first two. Right, work at those first two, get them down. And once you've got those first two done, then move on to the other 48. That's fairly easy, isn't it? Now, we're going to read from verse 14. After John was arrested... Jesus came into Galilee proclaiming the good news of the kingdom, uh, sorry, the good news of God, saying, the time is fulfilled, the kingdom of God is at hand, repent and believe the good news. And passing along the sea of Galilee, he saw Simon and Andrew, the the brother of Simon, casting a net into the sea, for they were fishermen. And Jesus said to them, Follow me, and I will make you become fishers of men. And immediately they left their nets and followed him. And going on a little farther, he saw James, the son of Zebedee, and John, his brother, who were in their boats mending the nets. And immediately he called them, and they left their father Zebedee in the boat with the hired servants, and they followed him. Now, Jesus here gives us three verbs which give us a way in to following God. The first is the word repent. Not a popular word, but it tends to go with pictures of fiery preachers talking about volcanoes and burning stuff, molten rock uh, and punishment, which is really not fair to the word at all. The word repentance actually means change the way you think. Right? Repentance is a change of thinking that leads to a change in the way in which we live. Jesus says to these guys, it's likely if you read the Gospels clearly that Jesus already knew these guys. In fact, he was actually related to a couple of them. So it's not like he just walks up to some strangers and says, "Uh, quit your jobs, come with me. 
right? He already has relationship with these guys. But Mark puts this right at the front because Mark is writing to a bunch of Roman Christians who don't know Jesus and he's giving them a manual for following Jesus. So right at the start, he wants to put this down because he thinks this is important. How do you start following Jesus? Well, you repent, you believe the good news, and you follow Jesus while he teaches you how to fish for people. That's it. Right? So if you love the Lord your God with all your heart and all your mind and all your strength and love your neighbours as yourself and you repent and believe the good news and you go with Jesus while he teaches you how to catch people and bring them into the kingdom, you'll do okay. Repentance is about orientation. Repent is about what you build your life around. See, Mark begins saying that Jesus says the time is fulfilled. The kingdom of God has come near. Jesus is announcing news that Jewish people have been waiting for for more than a thousand years. In fact, going back to Moses. They were waiting for the time when God would come and act on their behalf. And Jesus is saying, it's time. Now, if that happens, you probably want to reprioritize what you're doing with your life. Kingdom, I'm sure you will know because I know Kirk, is God's rule. It's a dynamic thing. It's God coming and being the king. And so the good news that we're called to believe is this idea that the world has got a new king, but they didn't recognise him. But if we've come to faith, we've recognised this king. See, Jesus puts the good news in this terms. He says, the kingdom of God has come near. That's a way of saying that God's generous rule has come and is now freely available to anyone who puts their confidence in Jesus, who is the one who represents God. In fact, Jesus is the embodiment of God's rule. Jesus is the king. And so the reason the kingdom has come near is because the king arrived. But he snuck up on us. He came as a baby of a poor couple living in an unimportant town in the least important part of the country. This is how God came among us. This is how God became king. He did it through Jesus of Nazareth. Now Paul puts the good news in different terms. The shorthand for Paul's good news is... Jesus Christ, our Lord. That's the good news. The good news is is the announcement of a king. And so if you want to extend that a bit in Paul's thinking, what Paul is saying is that Jesus of Nazareth is Israel's Messiah. That's what Christ means. It's not a surname. It's a role. So Jesus of Nazareth is the promised one. He's the one that God promised would come and make everything right. 
And so this man, Jesus of Nazareth, is Israel's Messiah and the world's true king. Now, Paul wrote that to the Roman colony at Philippi, and he wrote it to the capital of the Roman Empire. This is a very subversive and highly political claim. Right at the time of a Roman emperor, Paul announces there's a new king. You should serve him, not Caesar. This is true of us as well. The good news calls for our allegiance. The good news calls for us to build our life around Jesus as the king of the world. That's what repent means. Yes, it involves being sorry for the bad stuff that you do and the good stuff that you fail to do. But repentance is orienting your life around the fact that God's king has come and he's initiated the new creation and called us to work with him in the, the redemption, the renewal of the whole world. That's what repenting means, that we reorganise our life and we start to help Jesus in the process of transforming the world. Now, the second word is actually a phrase. It's believe the good news. Now, I gave you two terms. Jesus used the term God's kingdom has come near. And Paul used the term Jesus Christ is the Lord. But Jesus is also coming to correct wrong notions about what God is like. Part of the good news is that God is not the way you thought he was. He's not a cranky old dude sitting up in heaven with a long white beard and a big stick waiting to beat you every time you get something that looks enjoyable or fun. Right? This is a popular conception of what God is like. And the testimony of the Gospels is, you want to know what God is like? God is like Jesus. And so the best way to, for you to find out who God is, is to get to know Jesus. And as you get to know Jesus, you discover that God is kind, that God is patient, that God is powerful and able to change the broken stuff in our lives. He's able to heal our bodies and our hearts and he's come to give us purpose. He's come to call us to partner with him in transforming our world. Whether we do that on a global level or whether we do that in a local level or whether we just do that in our family, that's up to you and God. And it probably has to do with the kind of giftedness that you have. But we're called to partner with God in transforming the world. Now, the last bit is often missed by the church. It's another verb, and it's the verb follow. Remember, we're pilgrims. We're people on a journey to somewhere. We're people on a journey to God whose way to God 
is through Jesus. The way is a person. So how did you come to know Jesus? It's probable that you got fed up with yourself, with your life, and you called out to God to help you. And you know, there's not ever going to be a time where it's not appropriate for you to call out to God to help you. I've been doing this a long time now, and I still pray a prayer like that most days. Right? You'd think I'd be an expert by this, but there aren't any. There's only beginners. There's only people who are stumbling after Jesus, trying to walk with him on his journey. When you came to God, somebody probably took you aside and taught you how to pray, showed you the Lord's Prayer, a kingdom prayer, where you invite God's kingdom to come into your world and you invite God's rule to bring change. And hopefully somebody also came alongside you and began to teach you how to hear God. And you learn to come to God in prayer, seeking intimacy. Remember those bits that we read out of John 14? God loves us and he wants to be in relationship with us. And so he continually calls us every day multiple times through the day, come to me, listen to me, I'll give you rest, I'll help you out. We're going to skip away because the clock's going to beat us, so I want to look at the last word. I'd like you to turn with me, if you can, to John 17. This is the third word, and this is an uncomfortable little story. You may not have heard this read in church before, because it shatters our Christian tourism, our notions of comfort and convenience that should come to us when we choose to bring our lives under the rule of the king of the universe. Jesus says, Will any of you who has a servant ploughing or keeping sheep say to him when he has come in from the field, come at once and sit down and rest at the table? Won't he rather say to him, prepare my supper for me and dress properly and serve me while I eat and drink and afterwards you will eat and drink. Does he thank the servant because he did what he was commanded? So you also, when you have done all that you were commanded, say, we are unworthy servants. We have only done our duty. That's a fun little story, isn't it? So we're called into relationship with God through his son, Jesus, who invites us to follow him on the way. And while we walk with him, he instructs us 
in a human life well lived. But we need to remember that the one we come to is the king. He's the master from whom we learn, who loves us, but we're called to be servants. And this is particularly important in church and in churches that are trying to engage with the mission of Jesus. See, the word servant is the ordinary word for slave. And remember, this was the time of the Roman Empire. Slaves had no rights. They were owned. They didn't get to decide what they did. They just had to do what the master told them. Paul starts his letter to Romans. Paul, a slave of Jesus the Messiah. Same word, doulos, servant. Right? He writes to the Corinthians and says, this is how you should regard us as servants of Christ and stewards of the mysteries of God. If you want to be a disciple, if you want to become a pilgrim who walks with Jesus on the way, then you're called to serve him. You're called to serve his purposes here in this community of faith. Because this is a group of pilgrims who are stumbling after Jesus on the way, but there's stuff to do. What does Jesus want from you? See, in Mark 10, 45, Jesus said, The Son of Man, this is the King, the Master, says the Son of Man didn't come to be served. He says, I'm not here for you to serve me. I've come to serve and to lay down my life as a ransom for the many. That's the one we're called to serve. He's probably going to be a safe guy to serve because he's serving himself. He's laid down his life and he's calling us to lay down our lives for the people that God is trying to work with. How are you serving God in this community? I know Nick's next door, but if I was to ask her, is there anything to do at Vineyard Pine Rivers? I'm sure she'd say, no, nothing at all, everything's taken care of. No, I doubt that. See, one of the ways in which you learn to be a disciple of Jesus is you start to serve. And if you feel like you don't know how to do anything, there's lots of easy jobs. Well, actually, lots, lots of jobs that just need to be done. In 1 Peter chapter 4, Peter talks about gifts of the Spirit. He says, there are those who speak and there are those who serve. Right In church, we tend to prefer the ones where we're just sitting around talking. Jesus is looking for people who are prepared to do. Let's pray. Jesus, we thank you that you have gone before us and that you have made a way for us to come to the Father. 
And we thank you that following you is an adventurous journey. So we ask that you'll teach us to obey. We ask you to give us the helper, the spirit of truth to be with us, to help us to obey. And we look for more of your love and your revelation to be poured into our lives. God, I pray that you will now give us the heart of Jesus who came not to be served, but to serve and to lay down his life. The best way to respond to this call this morning is not for you to come out for prayer, but for you to roll up your sleeves and sign up to serve. I'm sure there are people here you could talk to about that.